welcome to the Agile BI podcast, where we chat with guests or sometimes just to ourselves about being agile with teams who are delivering data, analytics, and visualizations. Welcome to the Agile BI podcast. I'm Shane Gibson. I'm Hamish. And I'm Liam. Welcome chaps, how's it going? Well we're uh, recording from a, uh, not from Wellington today, and we're recording in a pub, so that's uh, first for me for both of those things. Um, so I think we'll probably start off with Hamish, you give us a bit of background about your journey into this world of Agile. So I guess uh, my story in data analytics starts back in probably 2000 in the UK, where I fell into data warehousing through access databases and then into a few BI reporting tools, uh, lived in Australia for seven years and then back to New Zealand five, six years ago and uh, the Agile journey started probably in January when we met Shane who came in coaching our team uh, where we work. Liam? Cool. Um, I've only been in the workplace for about nearly two years now, um, obviously straight out of university. My journey in data analytics, I'm a, obviously a data scientist. My progression in the workplace has started around a team which traditionally did reporting to a team which now does predicting and then also there is some of the buzzwords around like AI and machine learning and predicting and models and all sorts so I kind of came in to help try and connect the dots on some of those things and try and um, be a team which is more try to do more things yeah yeah it is better things more interesting things than just reporting yeah, I think before we met Shane, we were stuck in a BAU support model, and we got the opportunity to create a new platform, cloud-based platform, and with that came an opportunity to do things differently and work better yeah. as well. And that's been probably, and Liam's job has been the on more of the spiky end of that with all the maths and things like that, rather than the crunching of rocks, which is probably more my data engineering department. And I guess we've now gone down this agile <coughs> route for about nearly a year now since our first training to then running a couple of sprints. So it's been a, actually quite an interesting journey and um, learned, learned quite, a long, quite a lot along the way. So I think today we're going to talk about that journey and then kind of, like you said, it's been, hell, it's been almost a year. Um, Although we kind of, yeah. I think we went in there slightly, lightly to begin with before we kind of yeah. doubled down and... and uh, Should we go Kanban? Should Kanban, we, yeah, Should yeah. we go Sprint? Well, like, I don't know the difference between those there. We'll work it out as we go. Yeah, and that's, that's interesting. I suppose, um, you know, I was just telling the, the people on the course today, um, often when I work with a new team, they want to go Kanban because it feels comfortable. It's kind of like the chaos that we normally run. Um, and in the past, I used to always say, no, you have to go scrum because I'm more comfortable with it. It's uh, more of a, we put unnatural constraints in. It, it helps you kind of learn some of their job behaviours faster. But as with your team, you know, it was like, well, you know, give it a go. Let's, let's give it a go and see what happens. And then if it doesn't seem to work for us, we can bring some more of the scrum behaviours in the beginning until we kind of learn those and, and move to the to the, um, the Kanban flow-based stuff. So, I mean, how do you guys find that? How do you find trying to use uh, a flow-based model on day one um, before we kind of flipped and, and became more constraints-based? I think you're right, it was fairly comfortable. I think everyone's worked in that way before and either in other teams we've had tickets 
<coughs> maybe not deliberately Kanban, but on a wall that you'd move between those statuses. So that worked fairly well to start. Like the thing that helped the team the most was the renew was the focus we got out of it, and the things around being able to ignore other people a bit more. You gave us permission to focus on ourselves, which we did fairly well to start, and that had interesting side effects as well, I think, which wasn't always, you didn't realise that it would cause other people would look in, inwards at us and wonder what we were doing, and we were just trying to get on with what we're doing. That was our assumption, at least. So Kanban at the start definitely helped, but it wasn't, we knew it wasn't going to last forever, I think. Yeah. It also took us a couple of attempts. We thought, oh, yeah, we might be able to implement this relatively quickly, but then you kind of said it might take a wee while, and and then we kind of thought, oh, we should be, to, should be able to have a product owner that doesn't need to give us 50% of the time. And then we kind of went along no, that journey and figured out pretty quickly that... I mean, know, we're, still, we're still having trouble yeah, with product owners still, now. <laughs> yeah. We're not... We've had good, we've had... But we understand, like... And they've got the, probably the hardest job, is. and that's what I tell them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think um, uh, I think it's one of the hardest things I find to get uh, good, dedicated, committed product owners um, that are there, right, for the team. Um, I think it comes back to that waterfall behaviour that, you know, you can throw a set of requirements over a fence and, you know, wait and then go back right at UAT time to tell the team that it's not what you wanted um, versus spending that time to engage. Yeah. You went through quite an interesting journey where... You started off with quite a strong product owner, um, and then in a couple of the sprints, you got one that was a little bit less available, um, and then back to quite a strong product owner again in terms of the next person. So how did you find that in terms of that seesawing between somebody was committed and dedicated to then kind of involved, and then back to another one that was committed and dedicated again? I think uh, it was knowing what decisions to ask them to make or we'd often we got into the habit of we'd start making decisions for ourselves and then it became a motto let's ask the product owner and when we had a product owner who was there as in um, whatever two ago one ago then we actually would start to engage with them constantly and it did work whereas if they're absent one of us would just take the lead and just decide so which has been our probably worst effort I think, and it is down to the product owner giving us direction, but it depends how the information products come to us. Some are forced from up on high and some are generated from an actual need and having the person understanding what it is that needs to happen versus just thinking this is something that someone's told them to do then doesn't always work. So, But definitely with the engaged product owner is was the best we've had, but unfortunately we're that priority's changed and we're not on that at the minute and then we're on something else so that's that's kind of another story but product owner thing is something that we've tried because i guess if they don't really know what the role of a product owner is as well we've kind of had to then coach them a little bit on that as well as then engage them in a sprint scenario as well and i guess also the different thing is that we don't have the luxury of being able to um, I guess have that as a prerequisite as in okay this product owner does roughly know what the product owner does before we actually commence the sprint usually we'll then commence the sprint and then kind of teach them okay can you please do this and just make sure you keep an eye on the tickets and done and things like that so I guess we're slowly sort of refining the, the product owner onboarding as we kind of get further down and I guess it was only kind of one way to learn that and that was 
through doing, which is what what, what we've heard multiple times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think um, one of the things I find interesting is that if we're looking at uh, you know the, what we call the traditional agile approach, where we're doing software development, we will typically have a product owner for the life cycle of that product. Um, but when we do data and analytics, because we we deliver something to a certain part of the business or for a certain business process or a certain outcome, um, we seem to switch product owners in and out more often. Um, so we don't have a dedicated product owner that takes us through that journey. Um, we have a product owner come in for, for that outcome and they kind of exit and then come back in later. So I think that makes it difficult because we are recycling them. Um, and I think your point, Liam, yeah, yeah there's, uh, I've started to realise there's this, this role called a product owner coach, um, which is you know, helping those product owners on board early. So you know, from a definition of ready, we try and yeah. groom the tasks yeah. before they hit this, you know, the next iteration. We should probably, and I'm not sure grooming a product owner is the right term you can use, um, <laughs> but we should be helping that product owner come up to speed yeah. before they, they, you know, the rubber hits the road. But then if we're struggling to get their investment, for the length of the iteration we were doing work for them, getting that effort early when actually they're just learning how to do that role is going to be challenging as well. Yeah, and I think the successful product owner we did have, we spoke to their manager and made sure that they were aware they're coming down to sit with us 50% of the time and we actually did that bit well, whereas on other ones, not, not so much, I think. So that was probably the difference we made and then we were very clear by the way, your role is to make sure you talk to the stakeholders. I'm not going to talk to them and make sure they're aware of what we're doing. You need to keep them all on board. And they knew they that's what they're doing. And actually, the problem we had a while back was we had stakeholders come to the demo day and then they're like, well, what's, what use is this? And we assumed that the product owner had been talking to the one of the stakeholders. And it's no good if you do it every day. It needs to be done every more often than that. And we're yep. like, okay, uh, we could do that, and but the product owner never knew that their role was to talk to stakeholders and make sure that their requirements were met too but which comes back to product owner training I think so yeah and I think that's, that's critical right um, especially as we recycle yeah. or cycle them in and out not, not recycle them as a, yeah, put them in the crusher and bring them back again yeah, yeah. yeah. now well, what we do have a little bit of documentation around because everyone uses the same sort of terms like mm -hmm. done and progress and so forth and we had to then make our own little documentation of our own definitions I guess our little flavour of it because we learnt quite quickly that yeah the agile definitions in some different parts were quite different so we just had to make sure that we we did write that down on a bit of a bit of documentation and then show that to them so that's kind of part of our onboarding is, is having that yeah, I mean that's a funny one. Is um, with another team, and um, they they have a stakeholder uh, committee, a, a governance group, um, which is, is something that they can't not do at the moment. So, you know, uh, agile delivery of the team, but not so much uh, business agility. Um, and so they were having a steering committee, um, and the steering committee had actually had some agile training. So um, the team were presenting the information products and what was next in terms of their priority and uh, the stakeholders said, well, you know, what's that? Is that an epic, a feature, a user story? Um, and you know, we hadn't quite hardened our terminology up. So, you know, 
you can have a bunch of epics within an information product if you want to. You know, you can have a bunch of features within, you know, and so, um, you know, as part of that, it kind of hardened it up to say, well, an epic is an information product. You may not want to have it that one-to-one, but actually by having it one-to-one, it's really, really clear. So having that terminology is, is really important, I think. Yeah, we quickly found that we ended up having epics and tasks, and then everything else in between was just we didn't think about we didn't think about features it was more acceptance criteria and we kept it down to that so we've only really got two things an epic is an information product and then there's just the tickets we need to do to get the thing done and that was what we did having the rest of it we found just too much effort for probably the size of team we got small team we didn't need to have all these different things and but success criteria having them and not lots of user stories but enough to make it usable but probably the what does success look like? <coughs> That's worked well, hasn't it? Having those things yeah. and then we can work to them. Probably don't refer to them as much as what we should, but having them set up front allows the product owner to see what they're going to get. That idea of acceptance criteria, how, how are you finding setting those? Because I, I tend to struggle, right? Getting good acceptance criteria, especially with data and analytics. Exhausting? <laughs> yeah. There was the one we did with the good product owner and you weren't there, Shane, and Liam and I pretty much had to run the by the end of the, run the planning session and by the end of the day I was knackered because we had to draw out of them draw out of them all <clears throat> yep. the things we needed to know and it was just ended up getting a little bit technical, but uh, we've got things and we can point to them and say that's done and not done and right. but it was it's hard work and it's, it takes longer than what you think. The planning, probably the big thing we learn is the planning and the retros and all those type of sit-arounds just take ages. And it's, at the start, so much time spent doing it, but it's useful. You spend a day and a half planning, then three days executing it. Actually, it's worthwhile rather than just the opposite of that, which is probably how it used to be. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, an interesting question I um, ever got asked or asked somebody the other day is... uh, you know, of those five ceremonies that we do for Scrum, which one would you lose? If you had to lose one, which one wouldn't you do? We hardly do backlog refinement, actually, to be honest yeah. with you. Backlog yeah. grooming, we really do that just for the... But Is it because we, we've got someone remote or... Nah, it's not really because of that, it's just... The retros we all like. Yeah. Give us the a good time to sessions, yeah. Yeah. download, yep. have a moan. Do you think that um, not doing the refinement as often as we normally would is a symptom of not having a really good IP backlog, that there's not really a, a bunch of IPs that have been prioritised and that you know kind of which one might hit you next. It it's yep. seems to be slightly more random in terms of which priorities the priority next time, which you know, is okay, right, from an agile point of view, being told just in time what you're working on is okay. It's not great. You, know, you kind of want to have a bit more of a roadmap ability to kind of groom and think about and refine the stories before you hit planning? I think with us um, there was a wider company agile thing kicking off at the same time and I'd go to bigger planning sessions and they say well I'd say we can work on that in two weeks like how can you work on that in two weeks because our current sprint ends in two weeks and everyone was just oh you can't say that it's like well we can we'll work on whatever's big next but you're right beyond whatever the current sprint is we never have a view of what's next or we haven't because it's what changed three times last week so it's 
not ideal, but that's what's been happening to us lately. So yeah, and we did we did a, a bit of portfolio planning. I remember, right? We tried. Yeah. I think we had two or three goes where we tried to get a slight, you know, a roadmap of what next would look like. And then as soon as we walked into the next iteration, priorities had changed. And so, yeah. you know, we kind of decided that it wasn't worth the effort. We were putting a whole lot of effort in for something that was giving us minimal value at the time um, for a whole raft of reasons. And I think our transition from a reporting team to a pure analytics team has been harder and longer than what we would have hoped due to other factors that we can't control so we're stuck with a lot of BAU things that are not pure analytics but we get stuck with them and that just seems to be stuck with the people who've been there the longest and there's these types of problems we get too so we've we always talk about BAU bleed and we've never really got a good solution for it so I think we're just learning to accept it now and just just do it time box it doesn't always work but that's some of the approaches we've been taking yeah I used to think around acceptance criteria because when I did a little bit of scrum mastering for just a small dev team we were two, three people and the acceptance criteria I was kind of alliterating that that was like the lifeblood and that we didn't usually I think in one of the sprints we didn't quite prioritise we just had the acceptance criteria in bullet points or we had like yeah. things as like a high priority and we'd give like three or four of these tasks a high priority but then when we actually looked at it okay which one of these higher priority has a higher priority so we've kind of over time managed to kind of also, um, I guess, prioritise that acceptance criteria. And I guess the next step also is, I don't know if, if something we look into is whether or not we link some of the tickets to the acceptance criteria or something, because we don't actually have a direct link. We sort of do, but there isn't, necess- like, there isn't necessarily anything showing. So your acceptance criteria are kind of more sprint goals, right? Yeah. You know, what, what success for the sprint looks like. And then as a team, you're mature enough to decompose those goals down to a series of tasks Um, but I think I'll come back to your point about we're not really doing user stories or features and that's probably because you know we're walking into the iteration for sprint planning with a product owner and a goal we haven't refined um, you know we're going straight to what's the acceptance criteria for the sprint um, and then how do we apply tasks to get there and the team's mature enough that it works well in, in some cases though we end up with a lot of off, off task, off ticket tasks. <laughs> Hamish is always working on that off ticket task, which is the, which is the combination of the five other tickets. Yep. So, what we what we often find is the task creation comes at the end of the day. Everyone's tired, so we just smash them out, yep. and then we've stopped doing that. And actually, the next day, it's like we'll do them all again in the morning when we're all fresh. So it ends up taking a day and a half to do the planning, and then the tickets are getting more task related but because we're working in new technologies and we're learning constantly it ends up being a uh, you know we've got more than one way to do things sometimes we today even we change our mind on how we're going to do it and then so what ticket are you working on oh it's actually all of those five all at the same time how can that be it just kind of is and then they all move so that that's where backlog grooming would help us where we actually uh, do we add tickets during the sprint but it ends up being a ticket because it is a thing, so it means our estimation and velocity is always out the door. Really, it's it's the story points to tickets and the yeah. whole burn down chart that we've been looking at as well. Like it's kind of the story point thing. We're still really trying, working hard to try to get sort of um, 
I guess, correctly sized stuff, right? But, but what would take us 20 points in January now is yeah. seriously three to five points. So we've evolved our platform to the point where we can do stuff quickly, but then some little, there's little always tasks a new have something. Cloud-based on. stuff, there's always heaps of cool little updates they do. So <laughs> And you just go, oh, or oh you, or shiny! You, or you oh. just, <laughs> I'll just upgrade that now. Oh, gee, oh, maybe I shouldn't upgrade a terraform. I'll roll all that back, but that was a whole morning wasted on trying. <laughs> so we've got little things like that that catch us out all the time, and I like shiny things, so try to avoid doing upgrades mid sprint. Yeah, it doesn't always work. No, um, but again, you know, you've been building the airplane while flying it, right? Yeah. yeah. How have you found that that emerging architecture, that emerging design, that actually building the platform as you deliver value to the business users versus what we you know we would call uh, iteration zero where you get given three to six months to build something that met everybody's needs would if you had to go back which way would you go no, i think the way we did it to be honest with you it's been we don't know if we talked today someone asked well why'd you do it that way we're not going to build anything we don't need to use uh, in advance we can't we shouldn't assume we're going to do it that way so we've built some things that we have changed but we've built a lot of things that we thought we might have to change that would never change they've ended up being the right decision so it's better to make a decision than try and figure out which method was better we've got three ways to do one thing but we'll slowly migrate to one or we won't or we're as and when we need it so i mean a good example of that is our onboarding documentation which is non-existent so new people find it hard but we've never had to onboard anyone until last week so now we've got people now we'll build it we'll do right. just in time and I think I don't know it works for me it makes it fun it makes it interesting so you've got to think on your feet but how much refactoring do you think you had to do over oh, the last wee while we haven't refactored we did take actually a, about a week and a half of refactoring at one point which was a good decision but other than that there's not been there's now two methods for doing the same thing which we need to merge into one so but the idea of <clears throat> being able to build everything, burn it down and build it all up from the beginning, it's still the idea and it's, we can't do it tomorrow, but that's where we want to get to, where if we had to refactor it all and change all the metadata columns for someone had a different, someone who used camel case or we wanted to change our naming conventions, we could do it and it all should just work. But mm. it's not there yet, but... Uh, I guess using your airplane example, it's kind of building it while it's in air, but I guess... As kind of a user of it, I guess I see it as sometimes, you know, when you go to land, you're kind of quickly refueling half tank and then quickly <laughs> bang up in the air again and onto another new sprint. So it's whether or not that kind of the trade off between up in the air or whether or not you stick down, I guess, because we've been doing sprints back to back, to back right? Yeah, I guess we've only really had. We're so either lucky been... enough or smart enough that it hasn't <laughs> crashed yet either. So. But, but is that, yeah. you know, that analogy is not so much that. Um, as you're building the aeroplane it's not good enough it's I think the analogy you're using is that we call it a sprint but actually it's a marathon right where yeah. we sprint and then sprint and then sprint and we never actually stop so there is no respite right from a delivery of value to the stakeholders there's no gap and I was reading something the other day or a podcast or something where they were actually saying um, that that constant work even even when we get good at making it just you know 40 hours a week or whatever standard week is still burns us out that actually we need to inject um, downtime um, so they often you know they were talking about um, leaving um, 
you know, every couple of sprints taking a week out where you don't actually do anything. Um, yeah, you always stuff to do, but you're not actually in the sprint cycle. Um, so that's that's an interesting thing. Yeah, um, yeah, we could do with that right now. Yeah, um, the one I I I, I tend to um, I like using um, hackathons, right, or innovation sprints, where you know you kind of you're still doing something, but it's it's more fun. Um, so yeah, one of the, the teams I work with they do the Dragon's Den, so they 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 were a lot bigger. Um, so they actually Gerhard was on here talking about it a while ago um, so they you know they got the whole team and I think they had 20 or 30 people and they split them up into teams of five and then each team got to pick something that they wanted to build um, and then they all just spent a week building it and then they presented to the senior executive as a Dragon's Den to get funding to uh, be able to then put it into an iteration and deliver it into production um, so that gave them you know they were still doing work Ish, but you know that gave them a bit of something different, right? Yeah, a little bit of variability, or well, that seemed to make a difference for them. Um, and I think that's one of the key things that you know need to recognise for you guys is that your team's tiny, right? So you know, how, how many people have you got on your squad for this? Uh, on average, you know, because it's been a slight change. Four. Yeah. So that's that's you know down to that, minimum big. viable team size, right? Uh, you know, um, very very small team for building an entire platform and delivering value. Um, yeah, I think in some ways we enjoy that because then everyone's always got something to do. There's never yeah. there's never a dull moment, and it's it makes it interesting. Like some of our deployments have been pretty good fun, even though we're doing them on Thursday when demo day was on Friday. Even though that's <laughs> it. but it was there lots of high fives. It's a fun went in. And why should we, why should we be surprised it works? So yeah, that's right. One of the things we put in at the start is having tests for things. So we've got pretty good at getting getting tests in, and then we do Slack every now and then. We've had some stuff lately, which is kind of a classic ETL process where we haven't got a test for the actual result, but we need to go and put in tests to make sure that when we've got shared components and we change them, that, that ETL we built, call it ETL, two months ago still does what it says, what it should do, and we want to change these things. So we've got we're slowly building up a little bit of, not debt, but features we need to add to make sure that everything keeps running smoothly because we've got two, three things in production now and one of them's publicly facing and one of them's you know, getting consumed daily by a team of 10, 15 people. So we're building that critical mass now where we just can't, can't destroy it. Can't hack it. Yeah. <coughs> before before we could, we could afford to get away with it. Now we can't. I think, um, you know, you, you have a very strong testing mentality and you've also automated the testing a lot more than I normally see. Why do you think that is? Most, most data analytics teams I work with, they struggle with automating testing. I think we set out to do it and we've been lucky enough to work with a few people who've got a good background in different testing technologies and I think I've worked in warehousing long enough to know that not having tests kills you. And the good projects I have done is when we did have ways to burn it all down and stand it all up and build tests and now they're all code based and we're using different frameworks and I think that's just experience. You don't want to be having to get up at six in the morning to check that something's completed. You want it just to work and so that's, having done that lots of times, don't want to do that anymore and that's probably where it comes from. But And also being that small team, right, you can't, you can't afford, afford it for one person to be the uh, the 2am wake up and fix it person because then 
you know, they're not, not top of uh, top of form for... And I think we've built redundancy into things too, whereas some of the things we've done can go stale for three, four days before it'll actually make a difference. And we've thought about it in advance. We've got that, give ourselves time to fix it. It's not, it's daily loading, it's whatever, it's got time, it's, it's not... It's not streaming data, which we're lucky about, but yeah. if we did, we'd, we'd up the level of testing to make sure we can handle that stuff. So it's, it's typically unusual still to have uh, an engineering team that's building a platform with the, the science team. Normally it's, you know, uh, the engineering team go build something and the scientists either build something on the side or they wait and, and do it. How do you find that being part of the same team where you're trying to build data and a platform at the same time where you're trying to use some analytical capability against it to see what the data can do for you. Yeah, that, that's ongoing. Yeah. That, that, that's been hard. Before before we start a sprint, we kind of give what sort of times we have available. Um, so I guess when I do some sprint work, it may not necessarily be data science related. It could just be visualization sort of um, assistance. Uh, I guess I also, anything in data science is kind of hard to productionalize as well. It's usually kind of a lot of one, one-off ad hoc sort of stuff. So um, yeah, being able to try and do any of that in kind of a sprint-like fashion and we're still working through, I don't know if data science around agile and that work that good. I, I don't know, I haven't been around long enough, but the, the data science and yeah, it's definitely been, um, bit of a road to, to go along and there is kind of around the kind of machine learning stuff that we're starting to dabble with as well like the use cases for them aren't sort of at the highest priority I guess at the full team because I've only got one team working mm-hmm. aren't quite at we, it is down the line it is working on but I guess we we work on that sort of stuff outside of the traditional team sprint that we do that sort of kind of um, yeah outside of the sprint that we do if that sort of so you kind of I kind of play it back you're involved in the sprint so yes you, and sometimes when you have capacity you're helping out yeah um, but by being involved in the sprint you're understanding the data that's getting landed yes. what it's been used for yeah how much you can trust it and then as you look as you find analytical problems that you may want to work on at least you have an understanding of where the data is and what's available Yes. Um, versus being an intricate part of the team oh, that are actually yeah. delivering a model in three weeks at the same time the platform's being built, the data's being landed, quality issues being solved and the business being delivered, right? So, yeah. um, which would have been a bit of a stretch, I would have thought. Yep. Yeah, and, and learning how to get the data and the transformations that go along it, that has been, yeah, that, that value has been huge. So, um, yeah, learning some of the techniques of some of the other um, data engineers and that has out, yeah. Do you think um, by being involved, it stopped you going off and building your own analytical platform yes. while you waited? Yes. Yep. Which I, I see a lot of, right? Is that you know it starts off as an analytics project um, because AI is the new cool, and then everybody goes, well, that's great, but actually we don't have any scalable you know infrastructure, yeah. um, and we don't have any data. Um, so you know I have seen customers where they hire data scientists, the data scientist turns up, and they're like. Well, seriously, you've hired me, and there's nothing for me to run code on, uh, and there's no data for me to use. Yeah. Um, so you hired me because. Um, so, yeah, that's one scenario I've seen that hasn't worked so well. Yeah. Um, but the other one is, you know, we just do data, and, and 
you know, traditional reporting and we never explored the analytical side. Yeah. So, yeah, and I guess also learning kind of the team culture and team behaviour, being able to, because we'll go out and we'll go and test some things that are probably in beta and some of these cloud analytics platforms. So the way we kind of learn how to approach some of the team members in the way that suits them so we're not exactly hassling them so much but kind of like hey look we're keen to try to do this sorts of thing and oh how would you you know logging in a way which you know is easy for them and easy for us so I think that sort of um, has been a great benefit as well if I kind of if that makes sense yeah yeah no yeah, 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 it does um, I think yeah. one of the other things I saw that I, I found quite interesting was um, you know typically from a data point of view we taught to automate everything automate our collection automate our landing you know, our ingestion should all be perfectly automated and bulletproof but you kind of took a you know a, a file drop I call it uh, I know you have other unique names for it but um, you know a way of, of grabbing some data and landing it safely on the platform so you can then use it early um, from an analytics point of view that seemed to allow you to do some other things early because when you needed a piece of data, you know, you could basically go collect it yourself, drop it onto the platform in a more repeatable way, and then explore it versus having to wait for somebody else to do it for you or ask permission or, you know, log a, log a ticket and wait for the next sprint. Is, is that approach of having kind of a robust way of acquiring more semi-manual, semi-structured data being valuable? Yes, to, to be to be honest, we are the, the the thing that kind of where the cloud analytics platforms kind of came in was kind of the, the third party apps that come with it and the ability to process large amounts of data. To be perfectly honest, some of the stuff that we've been doing, well, particularly on the data science stuff, hasn't been particularly too complicated as such yet. So the cloud analytics platform, although it's been good, the whole robust thing, like I wouldn't say we wouldn't have necessarily needed it, but we have big data sets coming up shortly, especially sensitive ones, which will be perfect to then give it the full <laughs> test. But we did end up building two ingestion platforms, one that put the so file drop, SQL Server, whatever else, into the prod, but we've also built a, you haven't seen it, Shane, but the, the mini experimental zone okay. uploader, which can do Excel files, all sorts of stuff, straight to our database, which these guys can use. And I think the trick is, for them, just using it by default, yeah. not slipping back into how am I going to do this, just load the thing and yep. it's all, it was the whole idea was build a zone that they could experiment and do things and then lift and shift the code. It's not going to be a lift and shift, it never was, but yep. it's almost, we know your source, we know your preferred target, then we can push it into this. But without the, the UKR, we'd be in, it makes life pretty simple for getting new data sources even small ones gets big ones gets you know hundreds of thousands of files it doesn't really matter so it's not and I, and I think that you showed us in the expressions experimental zone and anything that we build any tables get demolished after what two weeks right, so we, or 15 days so we have to be able to think smartly how we create it so that in a couple of weeks time we can then implement and yep. recreate it again so that kind of that sort of mentality has been really helpful in the way that we think about things right from the get go so no swampy swamp. No yep. swampy swamp. No swampy swamp. And no, yep. and no like yeah questions a couple months down the line. Oh, how did we create that again? What was this weird statement that? Oh yep. God. Um, I think um, one of the things I see people talking about is um, this idea that you can experiment and then lift and shift the code. 
um, and and I uh, it's never worked in my view in my experience but the idea that you can experiment and then refactor and actually if you experiment and, and somehow closer to the way the code needs to be refactored then the refactoring is less right yeah I mean that was how we sold it lift and shift but I yeah. knew it was never going to be that but at least it's in the same technology and it's the, it's the same platform and you could take if they built views they'll more or less work and it tells you what you're trying to do and things so it's it was always going to be close but it was never going to be pure lift and shift and as we learn there's so many ways to do things it was just get the data in there to let them play and start something or even just small reference data as well it was always the problem how do you load that that 10 row table how do you store that and that was what we wanted to achieve early on so we didn't have issues getting small things in or big things yeah and I think the biggest thing as well in this onboarding or doing some stuff with the scrum team the data scientists was that we got to see how they what tools they used how they actually ran like virtual environments and mm -hmm. things like that so like what is very much a simple kind of thing like knowing kind of how they worked and um, knowing some of the even just the tools to be able to analyze some of these data sets was actually where we've seen a lot of the value so then um, as a team we're kind of using all the same tools and we're all kind of working efficiently in the same way so when we all run the same piece of code it's all well for data scientists we were doing everything relatively in our own environment or right. very much personalized right. so in terms of the, I guess it's I guess what I'm looking at is around the sharing of stuff yep. between the dev team they, they were sharing stuff perfectly right you know but as kind of data scientists we weren't quite sharing in the same same way rather inefficiently so just kind of and they probably also, you know, you're, you, I think you started adopting some yeah. data ops behaviour where you're data. checking code into a repository yeah, rather than just saving it on your um, yes. local personal directory. Now, yes. now, 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 yeah, yeah, now. it's, it's a final, journey. final, final bit. Yeah, yeah. it's but, a journey. journey. Yeah. So these ad hoc analysis are now in repos as opposed right. to some directory buried in the bottom of somewhere uh, so. on your H drive <laughs> yeah. uh, Liam yeah. personal <laughs> test to so prod, do not delete uh, so and like now there's and obviously when we put things in repos they have, they have to have freedoms like they have yeah. that like just things like that so it's all kind of little little steps have kind of now yeah, I think up. I liken it to you know when you're not a unicorn data scientist but you're just a human that actually wants to do good analytics there yeah. these tools and techniques yeah. um, and that adoption is really interesting so um, you know if I look at DevOps and data ops right kind of thing what I'm seeing is a lot of um, kind of agile data and analytics teams now seem to be deploying their own infrastructure um, they're not, you know, traditionally it was an IS job and even yeah. if the data and analytics team are in IS, they seem to do it without the traditional IS team and I'm seeing that a lot and um, one of the customers I'm working with at the moment, they have a very traditional release process and infrastructure process so even though they've gone cloud, they still believe that the IS infrastructure team should be doing all the you know, the creation of the scripts to stand up and burn down um, infrastructure. Um, but I work with multiple teams now where the data and analytics teams are actually doing that for both their code and their infrastructure. And I know that's something that you did. So, you know, why was that? Why was it something that you built because, was it because you had to, you wanted to? What? I had to, wanted to, wanted to know what was going on so we could 
be masters of our own destiny. I don't want to say don't trust anyone else, but we, if we knew what was going on, then we could shape it how we want it. And I guess the, the cloud platform we chose, when you look at it, we were probably the most educated people on what we needed to do, and data and analytics was maybe a speciality in it. It wasn't spinning up compute. It was all serverless. We were using it as a service, and we knew we knew what we wanted to do, but we just had to do it in a new way. So um, if we had to wait for someone else to do it, we'd be still waiting. So we just got on and did it, I guess, and it was... Yeah, and we wanted to do it too, like learning new things, and it was it's worked well, I think, and we've built a, a platform now, and within the platform we've built our own little area, and when the time comes we can hand the platform over to the to the responsible team, and then we can manage our little little area, but by doing it that way it let us shape it as well and get, get what we want, so it was probably something you've taught us, Shane, is don't control what you can control, and if you have to rely on other people, you're in trouble, and that's um, what I yeah. think we thought. Well, you, you so. may not be in trouble, but it's going to happen, <laughs> in my experience, yeah, right? So, so self-organising means control of your own destiny. And um, the other thing for me is uh, code's code. So, you know, as long as we're no longer buying hardware and shipping it from Singapore and racking it, you know, uh, in a cupboard in our office, and then, you know, getting our CDs <laughs> out and putting VM on and, and that kind of stuff, uh, code's code, right? So as long as the platforms we choose, our servers are code, uh, our data's code, uh, everything's just code, and we treat it as such. Then uh, why not? Yeah, I think what we everything everything's in code. Ninety-eight uh, percent of it's in a build server. We've got a little bit that isn't, but apart from that, we've done pretty well, I think. And and it just to, we've had to refactor. We had to move regions as well. At one point, we moved from Australia to America, and we did that all in code, and it all it all works. So being able to make those decisions quickly and act on them has been we would not be where we are if we had to had a yeah, wide group of people um, probably but I know one of the challenges you know with the stuff that we're building at the moment um, and in our startup one of the challenges we have is I think I stole one of your techniques actually and uh, um, I started getting alerts from the, the cloud provider into my Slack channel um, of, uh, of what's changing and so it's like oh holy Every morning I'm waking up and it's like, oh, shiny, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. But that, that's part of the, the value and the problem, right, is actually uh, figuring out how to manage that rate of change. You know, the things that you go, damn, built that last month, wish I had a known, um, you know, versus, oh, that's going to make us go a lot faster, but probably not this iteration as a challenge, right? Yeah, I mean, we use a lot of things that's in, a lot of things that are in beta still to our own detriment probably as well. So it's just that's just how it is. I didn't realise how much was, but it's just... We need them, so we use them, and that's just a decision we've taken. And it's not if we have to refactor, we will, and that's. But <coughs> you may not. Yeah. So. Yeah. All right. Was just looking at time. I might close it out. I've got a question for Liam because this is one of my favourite ones. Um, so I think I was uh, replied to somebody. I cheekily replied to somebody's LinkedIn post the other day when they were talking about the top analytical routines that most data scientists run, and I and I said to him, uh, <laughs> "You forgot to mention number one's group by." Um, so I come back to the point you made slightly earlier, which was actually in terms of the maturity of what you're doing, yes, machine learning and vision analytics and natural language is all great and high value, but actually at the beginning, you know, some simple, using some data with some simple techniques to start that journey um, is actually probably what you're doing. Now, I paraphrased you there. <laughs> is, did I get it right? or Yes. Uh, well, yeah, the old group by count. Yeah. 
um, counter nulls, all that sort of stuff. Uh, obviously understanding the data first, um, and obviously I think you showed me a thing around about that pandas profile yeah. thing, yeah. Like, like, that sort of stuff, right? descriptive, yeah. yep. like just initially looking <coughs> at the data first to see what's missing and what's, so that, obviously that was um, obviously a big part of it. Yeah. And there are these all these little services as well that, you know, you don't need to know a large amount of data science to be able to use some of Google's natural language stuff, but I guess being able to understand some of the bias between some of it and yeah. understanding where its pitfalls can be is kind of, um, well, some of the stuff that we've been investigating. But, yeah, I guess the old, yeah, group by accounts. Well, sort of start off with the, yeah. the, the easy stuff yeah, and then yeah, build yeah. up to the complexity, right? Where yeah. it, where it you, you have value in it. But I think, you know, with the buzzwords out there, I mean, now that big data's dead and, you know, MapR's gone bankrupt and been bought out, so, you know, the Hadoop, I think uh, big data Hadoop world's died, but yeah. we're now on the world of AI. Yeah. You know, uh, AI for everything. So, uh, but when possible, I try to avoid the words machine learning and right. AI because they do they are, they, are, they are those buzzwords that yeah. do get confused and misinterpreted, like some of the agile words, right? Yeah. So, oh, yeah, we, no, no, no. so we try to avoid them and use detail yeah. when possible. If that kind of answers the cool. yeah, <laughs> no, that's the question. That's yeah. a good answer. <laughs> Excellent. All right. Well, I think we might close it out there. So thank you. And uh, thank yeah, you. thanks for letting me uh, record in the pub. That's uh, all right. So I apologize to our listeners for the choice of music. It was uh, not my, Hamish's or Liam's choice of uh, background music, but it was just the location we're at. Excellent. All right. We'll catch you later. Thanks for having us, Shane.